calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hello, everyone. I am le pooped today, and I'm saying le pooped because we are in France for today's episode. I don't know what kind of accent that was. I apologize. But I had such a fantastic weekend celebrating my friends getting married, but this gal (laughs) is not one who likes to party multiple days in a row, and I drank two nights in a row, and I feel like actual death. The inside of my body feels like a raisin, and all I want to do is lie down and go to sleep, even though it is nowhere near bedtime yet. But like my mom always said, if you're going to dance, you got to pay the band. I am very happy to be giving you the final Notorious Bitches episode. We're keeping it spooky even in the beginning of November. And speaking of the fact that it's the beginning of November, I'm so sorry that I haven't released a book for November yet. I have been so scatterbrained. And I am going to be posting something on Instagram very shortly and on Patreon, releasing whatever book we will be covering this month. Just a reminder, there's only going to be two more months of the Angry Feminist Book Club before I switched over to Mad Gabin with Madigan, which will be a fun little advice segment slash confessional where you can send me things that I will read anonymously and be able to give my advice or react to it, so on and so forth. I think it's going to be really fun, and I did want to find a way to be more interactive with all of you. So if you're interested in that, that will be coming out in January 2024. But until then, you can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist, or you can become a feminist fave for $8 a month, where you will get these episodes ad-free. You'll usually get them a little bit early. You'll get some bonus content now and again, and you're just going to be showing me a little bit of extra support. I'm also very, very excited for this coming week's episode on Still Learning. We spoke with a woman named Alice Hines, who is a journalist that was most recently seen in the documentary series on Prime Video called Desperately Seeking Soulmates, which goes into the online cult of Twin Flames. And Alice was very, very involved in telling this story and working with the people that were in 
in the cult and the leaders, so on and so forth. And she was such a wonderful person to speak with. So if you haven't watched that docuseries yet, I highly recommend it. I binged it in one afternoon and I called it research. (laughs) And we just had a wonderful conversation. It was very informative. And if you're interested in learning more about psychological manipulation and high control groups and about the making of that docuseries, you're definitely going to want to check out this episode. You can find Still Learning with India Oxenberg anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We're having a great time, and I hope you're all enjoying it too. Okay, I don't think I have anything else to fill you in on, so with that, enjoy our final Notorious Bitches episode of 2023. Coco Chanel was a French fashion designer and businesswoman, and of course, the founder of the Chanel brand. She made a place for herself in history through her inventions, including the little black dress, Chanel No. 5 perfume, and of course, the Chanel bag. But it was uncovered a little over a decade ago that Coco Chanel also had close ties to the Nazi party and actually worked as a spy for them during World War II. But yet this hasn't seemed to damage the brand's reputation even today. Tansy Hoskins, author of Stitched Up, the anti-capitalist book of fashion, says, It's clear Chanel's far-right ideologies influenced her designs. She championed minimalism and the austere. It's very white European. Instead of focusing on her racist views, people like to focus on what she did positively for women, as she's often cited for creating clothing that was more comfortable and practical than previous designers' clothing, and she wanted it to be fashionable too. And women really reacted well to it. If you would begin to attempt to unfold the past of Coco Chanel, you'll soon find that there are about 50 different versions of the story. Chanel herself notoriously told many different stories to different journalists who interviewed her throughout the course of her life, and the stories she told of her childhood never seemed to add up. Justine Picardi, an author who spent 25 years researching the designer and writing her biography, said, She had to create a series of stories that were bearable. The truth about her childhood was too unbearable, and I think she wanted to leave it as far behind her as possible. Picardi did a lot of traveling in her search of the truth about Coco Chanel, and she learned that she was born Gabrielle Chanel on August 19, 1883, in Samour, France. Longtime listeners know that I am terrible with French pronunciations of any kind, so you're going to get a lot of really, really bad pronunciations in this episode. I apologize. She was the illegitimate child of Eugenie, who went by Jean, and Henri Albert Chanel. There was a typo on Gabrielle Chanel's birth certificate, though, stating her name as Chasnel rather than Chanel. Her parents already had one daughter a year before her named Julia. Their father was not present for either birth a good indicator of the kind of father he would be and the kind of partner he was for Jean. There was one story that Coco told over and over again through her life, so we can presume that at least some of it could be true. She said that her mother went into labor with her while she was on a train in search of her elusive husband. Apparently, Coco was born right then and there. At first, the people around her mother wanted to help her, thinking she was ill. But when they realized she was a single pregnant woman traveling alone, people were less inclined to help her. It was amazing to me because when I first heard that story when I was listening to an episode of Behind the Bastards where they cover Coco Chanel, I didn't understand. I'm like, well, why would they not want to help a pregnant person? And then I was like, oh, because she's having a bastard baby and that makes her a bad person and no one wants to be around her. All right, I get it. Also, by the way, Coco would go by her birth name Gabrielle for most of her childhood, but for a lack of confusion, just like the last few weeks actually, I'm going to continue to call her Coco even throughout all of her childhood stories. And when Coco was 15 months old, her parents got married. 
Now that Jean and Henri are married, maybe Henri will be a bit more present in their lives? No. He traveled from place to place, allegedly looking to find work or selling his assorted goods out of a cart that he pushed about. In their marriage, the couple would go on to have four more children, but not all of them would survive past infancy. The surviving children were Coco's younger sister, Antoinette, and her brothers, Lucien and Alphonse. Coco would sometimes concoct stories of her father visiting her as a child, but this doesn't seem to be true based on the records found of her father at the time. It seems like he was just a real piece of shit dad and husband. Probably came home, would swoon her mother, get her pregnant again, and then move on. Coco was kind of a dark emo kid. She said that by the age of six, she spent most of her time wandering around cemeteries. Quote, Every child has a special place where he or she likes to hide, play, and dream. Mine was the Avarine Cemetery. I knew no one there, not even the dead, and yet the dead seemed to come alive for me there, although they remained as silent as the graves. I was the queen of the secret garden. I loved its subterranean dwellers. The dead are not dead as long as we think of them, I would tell myself. Jesus. She also told biographers that she longed to be loved and lived with people who were unable to give that love to her. Quote, I wanted to be sure that I was loved, but I lived with people who showed no pity. I like talking to myself, and I don't like listening to what I'm told. This is probably due to the fact that the first people to whom I opened my heart were the dead. Okay, emo Coco. To make matters worse, her mother was often ill as well as Coco was growing up, and in 1895, death records show that Coco's mother passed away. Allegedly, Jean and her children were staying in this cabin with no heat, and her mother was found freezing and dead in her bed. We don't know if the children were alone with her or for how long or any details of this story, but that is absolutely heartbreaking, and I can imagine that being so fucking traumatizing for a child. Coco has claimed in interviews that she was just six years old when her mom passed away, but in reality, she would have been 11. She often lies about her age throughout many of the stories she tells. Coco would also claim that after her mother died, she was sent to live with ants, which could be true, but if it is, she only stayed there for a brief time, because records show that she was living in an orphanage run by nuns in 1896 in the town of Abazine after being abandoned by her father there. Apparently, he sold the sons off to a farmer and would make some money off of whatever work these kids did on the farm, but he couldn't sell his daughters to the farm, so he just dropped them off at this orphanage. And it doesn't surprise me that Coco would want to rewrite this part of her story. Take it from me, it's hard to admit that your dad doesn't or didn't love you. Coco would remain living in the orphanage until she turned 18, and it was there that she was taught to sew and eventually would begin to work as a seamstress. This orphanage was run by Catholic nuns, and at the time, the Catholic Church was highly anti-Semitic, especially after the Dreyfus Affair. Now, I would have to go through a whole separate episode on the Dreyfus Affair to really do it justice, but here's a rundown. It all began in December of 1894 when French artillery captain Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish man, was falsely convicted of passing military secrets to the Germans. He was sentenced to life behind bars on Devil's Island off of French Guiana. In a public ceremony before he was sent off, someone tore the insignia off of Dreyfus's uniform and shouted, Death to Judas! Death to the Jew! 
When they assigned a new head of the army's intelligence, they discovered evidence of who the real traitor was. But when he went to his bosses to explain this mistake, he was discouraged from continuing the investigation. To really make sure he didn't get the word out, he was then sent to North Africa and later imprisoned. People really wanted Dreyfus to be their guy. This incident drastically divided France. Alfred Dreyfus's conviction also brought up tensions regarding politics, religion, and national identity. They were separated into Dreyfusards and anti-Dreyfusards, which is a really weird word to say and almost sounds inappropriate. Those who were against Dreyfus were pro-army conservatives, Catholic traditionalists, and monarchs. Dreyfus would go through a series of appeals and trials until he was finally pardoned in 1899 and officially exonerated and reinstated into the army in 1906. So the fact that Coco was being taught by these Catholic nuns is a very good indicator of the type of curriculum she had at this orphanage. I got a lot of my information from different articles talking about Hal Vaughn's book, Sleeping with the Enemy. And in the book, he writes... Chanel could not have escaped the Catholic Church's propaganda campaign against the Jewish officer Dreyfus. He described Coco's anti-Semitism like this. Her fear and hatred of Jews was noxious and notorious. According to the information gained from the Behind the Bastards episode, Coco was often given to anti-Semitic outbursts. They state in the episode as well that her level of anti-Semitism for her age and the time period were considered to be quote-unquote average, which is disturbing as fuck. But as Coco got older, she became much more outrageous with her views. It's like everyone was a little bit anti-Semitic and then Coco just like really dug her heels in. Once she reached adulthood, Coco lived in a charity place at the Notre Dame boarding school in Mullins. The mother superior of the school then helped find Coco and her sister Antoinette jobs as seamstresses in a draper shop in town. In town, there were several army regiments garrisoned at the time, and while working at the draper shop, she began to interact with a lot of army officers. Along with sewing, she would also sing in concerts for the local barracks. There was a time where she really wanted to make it big on stage. One of the songs she sang was, Ki Kavu Koko? Saying that wrong, but it's translated to Who is Coco? A song about a young girl who loses her dog in Paris. It's said that that is how she gained her nickname. Although again, Coco will tell you like 10 different versions of how she got her nickname. She spent the summer of 1901 with her grandfather in Vichy. When speaking of this time, Coco often refers to herself as being only 16 years old when she was in fact 21. While staying in Vichy, she met the cavalry officer Etienne Balsan. Coco was gorgeous, and she spent most of her life going from wealthy man to wealthy man in high social circles who introduced her to the finer things in life. Etienne was born into a wealthy family of industrialists who created a company that provided the army with uniforms. He would play a pivotal role in helping Coco get her future fashion business up and running. He introduced Coco to a lifestyle she had never known before, filled with luxurious parties and decadences. He showered Coco with diamonds, dresses, and pearls. Coco began making hats while living with Etienne and became a licensed milliner in 1910, and she opened a boutique at 21 Rue Cambin, Paris, which was called Chanel Modeste. Her career began to take on some success when actress Gabrielle Dorziat wore her hats as part of her costume in a play in 1912. Another notable lover from this time was Arthur Boy Capel. And this is a bit tricky because Etienne and Boy Capel are friends. This is awfully messy, Coco. She reminisced about this love triangle years later, saying, 
two gentlemen were outbidding for my hot little body. I'm sorry, what? Hot little body? You okay? An article from the Daily News writes, A life of privilege as a mistress living with some of the richest men in Europe became Chanel's lifestyle. Traveling between their luxurious estates and spending idle hours fox hunting, playing polo, and even salmon fishing. He got her an apartment in Paris and financed her first fashion shops. She opened a boutique in Deauville, which was financed by Capel, where she began to sell deluxe casual clothing suitable for leisure and sport. Kind of like the original Lululemon. Allegedly, Coco had had hopes that they could settle down together, but Boy Capel was a player and couldn't remain faithful to her. He unfortunately died in a car accident in 1919, which was absolutely devastating to Coco. In 1915, she hoped to replicate the success she had in Deauville by opening up another shop. She set up shop in Biarritz, I think that's how you say it, which is close to wealthy Spanish clients and was, quote, a playground for the moneyed set and those exiled from native countries by the war. This establishment would go on to be so successful that she was able to pay Capel back for his initial investment. In 1923, the Chanel tweed suit was designed. When I think of Chanel suits, I immediately think of Jackie Kennedy sitting next to her husband, while he's being assassinated, and then her wearing that bloody Chanel suit for the next, like, 24 hours. So that's where my brain goes. But let's learn more about this classic of a fashion piece. It consisted of a jacket and skirt in supple or light wool or mohair tweed and a blouse and jacket lined in jersey or silk. One of Coco's first major designs to grow popularity for the brand, Coco did not stiffen the material or add shoulder pads, as was common in contemporary fashion. She designed the neckline to fit comfortably and added functional pockets. While testing out her design, she had the models walk around, step up on a platform, and bend as if they were getting into a low car. She wanted to make sure women could do anything they wanted while wearing her suit, without accidentally exposing part of her body. One of Coco's first major designs to grow popularity for the brand was the little black dress. In 1926, the American editor of Vogue predicted that the design would become a virtual uniform for women of taste. Chanel boasted that she had enabled the non-wealthy to walk around like millionaires. As for why black was the color she chose, she said, I imposed black. It's still going strong today, for black wipes out everything else around. I think it also ties to her super emo childhood, in my opinion. <laughs> and Chanel's designs, both with the little black dress and with her suit, were really revolutionary because before this, it was still very much more of a Victorian style with lots of corseting and it was very structured and not comfortable for women to wear. And it wasn't something that women could wear to be active participants in life. So that is one of the really amazing things that people like to thank Chanel for is making life a little bit more easily lived for these women at the time. And she was also very much inspired by the 1920s flapper. It was this whole new type of woman. She was no longer, you know, covered up and austere. She could be a little wild and crazy and fun and let loose after the horrors of the Depression. Her next venture was something that would solidify the Chanel brand into everyone's minds for generation to come. Perfume. The fragrance was created by a French-Russian chemist and perfumer by the name of Ernest Beau. The scent was unique because at the time, the options for fragrances were either overly floral or were heavy in animal musk. Coco wanted a scent that would appeal to the new flapper girls of the 1920s, who she saw as liberated and feminine. 
The bottle for Chanel No. 5 was also a new invention at the time. She wanted a completely transparent bottle, while other fragrances at the time were used in those old-fashioned crystal bottles that then had the little pump on it, which I miss. I would love to bring those back. I'm not a perfume girl to begin with, but maybe I'll just put like my eucalyptus oil in there or something. In 1924, Coco made an agreement with Pierre and Paul Wertheimer to create the corporate entity Perfumes Chanel. What may be surprising to you is the Wertheimer's are Jewish. I don't know if the name gave it away. The Wertheimer family had a history of working in stage makeup, and their ancestors invented the first powder rouge. The fragrance they created, Bourgeois, became the largest and most successful cosmetic fragrance company in France. They even went international and built a facility in Rochester, New York, where they manufactured and distributed a line of face creams. Pierre and Paul Wertheimer took over the directorship of the company in 1917. When Coco agreed to be in a partnership with them, she believed it was a good business move in order to extend her sales of Chanel No. 5 to a wider audience. She thought a business relationship with the brothers could be fortuitous. The Wertheimers agreed on a 70% share of the company, and in return, they would provide full financial backing for production, manufacturing, and distribution of No. 5, and Coco would receive just 10% of the stock. She then licensed her name to Parfums Chanel and removed herself from involvement in all business operations, something she would learn to regret later on in life. Once she became unhappy with this situation, a 20-year battle over the company would ensue. In 1923, a British socialite friend of Coco's introduced her to the English royal family, as well as Winston Churchill. Coco seemed to really hit it off with the Duke of Westminster, and they would go on to have a tumultuous 10-year relationship, but this tie also helped her grow her fashion empire. The Duke was also a very outspoken anti-Semite, just like Coco, which I'm sure only intensified Coco's antipathy toward Jews. In 1927, the Duke bought Coco a parcel of land on the French Riviera, where she built a villa which she called La Pausa, or a restful pause. After living with the Duke for a few years, she returned to Paris in the mid-1930s. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
During the Depression, though her business may have suffered a bit, Coco's workforce increased to around 4,000 employees by 1935. But then in 1936, there was a general strike initiated by the election of the Popular Front in May of 1936, which led to the creation of a left-wing government. The strike was born out of years of economic crisis. Unemployment skyrocketed, wages fell, and there were hordes of bankruptcies. In the strike, post officer workers stopped operation, transport did not run, buildings were left empty, and newspapers stopped showing up on doorsteps. Overall, some 4.5 million workers went on strike, and 1 million demonstrated. Those workers striking included the women who worked for Coco Chanel, who felt they were not being paid adequately for their work. The Motignon Agreement was introduced to resolve the strike, but Coco refused to implement what was asked of her from the agreement. The agreement asked for wage increases of 7-15%, to the right to collective bargaining and unionizing, a 40-hour work week, and a two-week paid annual holiday. Instead, she fired 300 women. These women in protest refused to leave the building. Coco did her best to fight against these women, but eventually she agreed to introduce a co-workers cooperative in order to get her next collection made. In 1939, at the start of World War II, Coco closed her shops, but kept her apartment above her couture house at 31 Rue de Cambon. And now all of her workers really did lose their jobs, all 4,000 women who worked for her, all because Coco said that it was not a time for fashion. This was seen as a very patriotic stance. And you know what? Maybe it's not a time for fashion, but protect your workers. Author Hal Vaughn suggests that closing her stores was possibly in retaliation for her workers going on strike years before. She also shared with her peers at the time her belief that Jewish people were a threat to Europe, so this was definitely making a stance. When Germany occupied France due to her ties in high society, Coco was sent to live at the Hotel Ritz, which was otherwise the residence for mostly upper echelon German military staff. But how did she get there? During this time, she was having an affair with Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage, a German aristocrat serving in Paris. He had been an operative in military intelligence since 1920 in Germany, and it was due to him that Coco had a cozy place to stay during the fighting. For Coco, spending time with her new lover meant rubbing shoulders with other Nazi officials, and she was quickly invited into the fold. Later the same year they began dating, or whatever they were doing, Von Dinklage actually went to Berlin to meet Adolf Hitler himself. This actually directly benefited Coco, as her nephew André, who was a member of the French army, was being held as a prisoner of war in Germany. This meeting helped convince the Nazi officials to release André in exchange for some of Coco's powerful allied connections. Now we're starting to see where the real badness comes in. The fact that she was so anti-Semitic throughout her life was bad enough, but the fact that she was actually in cahoots with Hitler in a way? Yikes! Coco also saw the means to take advantage of the German occupation for her business by petitioning German officials to grant her full ownership of Parfums Chanel, pushing out the Jewish Wertheimer brothers. She wrote to the government administrator charged with pulling on disposition of Jewish financial assets on May 5, 1941, that her grounds for ownership were based on the claim that Parfums Chanel was still in property of Jews and had been legally abandoned by its owners. She wrote, The profits that I have received from my creation since the foundation of this business are disproportionate, 
and you can help to repair the part in prejudices I have suffered in the court these 17 years. Boo fucking who. When she started this lawsuit, or whatever you'd call it, Coco was not aware that the Wertheimers had already planned for just this sort of thing happening with the anticipating mandates against Jews in years past. They had taken steps to protect their interests, turning over legal control of Parfums Chanel to a Christian French businessman before fleeing France in 1940. Coco's fight for her company was lost, and at the end of the war, that Christian French guy turned Parfums Chanel back over to the Wertheimers. Sounds like a good man. Not long before the liberation of Paris in 1944, Coco was arrested by the French government. But since they had no evidence of her activities, they had to release her. According to Coco's grandniece, when Coco returned home, she stated, Churchill had me freed. This has become a topic of gossip and speculation because her interrogation was never made public by the French government. Some historians think that people were worried if Coco were forced to testify about her own activities at trial, she would also expose pro-Nazi sympathies and activities of top-level British officials, including Winston Churchill, and members of the elite society and the royal family themselves. When Hal Vaughn was doing his investigatory research for his book, he came across declassified archival documents which revealed that the French police had a document on Coco in which she was described as, quote, Courtier and perfumer, pseudonym Westminster, agent reference F7124, signaled as suspect in file. What he was able to uncover from this information was that Coco committed herself to the German cause in 1941 and worked for General Walter Schellenberg, the chief of the German intelligence agency and the military intelligence spy network at the Reich Security main office. Schellenberg was actually tried in the Nuremberg trials after the war and sentenced to just six years of imprisonment for his war crimes, which seems like quite a light sentence. The fact that Coco literally lived in the headquarters of the German military during their occupation of France was also very telling of Coco's involvement with the Nazi party to begin with, but I guess it wasn't enough evidence to actually prove her involvement. She fled to Switzerland in 1944, leaving a note on her store window saying that Chanel No. 5 was to be free to all GIs, and she was gone. She left in order to avoid any criminal charges for her collaboration with the Nazis. French intelligence agencies released declassified documents confirming Coco Chanel's role with Germany in World War II. Coco was directly involved in a plan for the Third Reich to take control of Madrid, which is just wild. She went to Madrid in 1943 in order to convince the British ambassador to Spain, a friend of Winston Churchill's, about a possible German surrender once the war was leaning toward a victory for the Allies. Coco traveled with von Dinklage and they were to report back to Schellenberg at the RSHA. One of Coco's other more prominent missions was Operation Model Hut, which I guess is translated from Operation Model Hat where she was to act as a messenger from Hitler's foreign intelligence to Churchill to prove that some of the Third Reich had attempted to make peace with the Allies. So she's just trying to smooth some things over. Coco and her boss, Schellenberg, had devised a plan to meet with Churchill to persuade him to negotiate with the Germans. When Schellenberg was asked about Coco after the war ended, he said she was a person who knew Churchill sufficiently to undertake political negotiations with him. That's pretty amazing that they would impress this female fashion designer to be able to do such quote-unquote important things for the war. Even if they are terrible things, they are really putting a lot of trust in her. And being a woman was actually 
probably a really great asset for them because she could travel under the guise of doing business for her fashion empire, and generally, people just suspected women less. After the release of Hal Vaughn's book in 2011, the Chanel brand released a statement saying, What is certain is that she had a relationship with a German aristocrat during the war. Clearly, it wasn't the best period to have a love story with a German, even if Baron von Dinklage was English by his mother and she, Coco, knew him before the war. Why are we trying to make excuses for her? It's like, well, technically, von Dinklage is actually English on his mother's side, so he's like not even totally German. And they knew each other before the war, so it's like not that weird that they would be together. It's totally fine. Well, this is how Hal Vaughn responded. A lot of people in this world don't want the iconic figure of Gabrielle Coco Chanel, one of France's great cultural idols, destroyed. This is definitely something that a lot of people would have preferred to put aside, to forget, to just go on selling Chanel scarves and jewelry. Hell yes! The company later released another statement which states how Coco was a daring pioneer, but that her actions during the war do not reflect the values of Chanel today. I feel like that came out in like 2020 fairly recently. After the war in 1945, Coco went on to live in Switzerland for several years, off and on living with von Dinklage. When she was more than 70 years old, she finally thought it was time to re-enter the fashion world. The revival of her couture house was financed by none other than Coco's opponent in the perfume battle, Pierre Wertheimer. Dude, what are you thinking working with her again? Apparently, the French press was quite cautious of Coco joining the scene again, as there was a lot of question and controversy over her activities during the war. However, the British and Americans saw it as a breakthrough. In her final years, Coco became tyrannical and lonely, according to some websites, which doesn't sound pleasant. When she was 87, her health began to fail, but she still went on with her usual routine of preparing the spring catalog. On a Sunday afternoon on January 9, 1971, Coco went out for a long drive. When she came home, she felt ill and went to bed early. She allegedly announced her final words to her maid. You see, this is how you die. She died on January 10th at the Ritz Hotel, where she had lived for over 30 years since World War II. Her nephew Andre inherited most of her estate, but the Wertheimers still own the Chanel brand to this day day. It makes me so happy and vindicated that she never won over the Wertheimer brothers. She always failed whenever she went up against them. And I'm amazed that they were able to protect their assets and their business so well during the war. A lot of Jewish people did this and Frank's family did it as well. But I just love how she was trying so hard to be like, oh, finally, it's my time because anti-Semitism is at a high and the Germans will kick them out of my business and I can take control again and make all the money, yada, yada, yada. And the fact that they had been so sneaky and did that behind their back in order to protect themselves, I think, is so fucking badass. I'm really glad that I did this story and I did all of the research that I did to learn more about Chanel because I feel like this is a relatively unknown thing. Maybe not for my listeners because I feel like this is something that feminists would be aware of, but the fashion industry as a whole still really celebrates Chanel and makes her seem like she was this great 
women's liberator and this great innovator, which she was, but at the same time, we shouldn't be celebrating the things that she's done. And I think it does get complicated because she is gone. She is not running the Chanel brand anymore. There are other people who don't necessarily hold the same views that Coco did, but it is really, really complicated. And I think it's important to learn about who designs our clothes, who makes our clothes. So we're spending our money in places that matches up with our moral values. And I think for me, that's really important. That's why my old job stopped selling anything Kanye West made. But I also feel like there are so many other designers out there that shouldn't be celebrated. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of really, really shady behavior in the fashion industry as a whole. But Chanel just seems like another level. I remember learning for the first time that people suspected that Chanel was some sort of Nazi spy. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. But now learning about her past and learning about what got her to that point It really, really makes sense. Coco seems like an incredibly flawed, angry, messed up person. She had an incredibly tough go at it in her early life and experienced so much heartache and I'm sure so much trauma as well that she was really susceptible to a lot of things. She was also raised by people who were incredibly anti-Semitic. But like I said earlier, Coco took it even further than her other classmates. So like I said, the reason I think this episode is important is because I want to encourage everyone to be as ethical as they can be with where they're putting their money, because truly it is just a bullshit capitalist agenda. And now you can save a ton of money by not buying that Chanel bag. All right, everyone, that's all I have for you today. If you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist and join that for $5 a month. But if you want to become a feminist fave, that is $8 a month. All of your money that is going toward those episodes are going directly into this podcast. And I am so appreciative to everyone who either is just sending the money and not listening to the episodes and just supporting or for those of you who are listening, I really, really appreciate all of your love and support. It truly makes a huge difference and it means so much to me. So thank you. Don't forget to check out a new episode of Still Learning on Friday. It's going to be very, very excellent. And lastly, if you enjoy the show, I would really appreciate you going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show with a five-star review. And if you listen on Spotify, I would really appreciate a rating over there as well. And if you like this episode, send it to a friend. Maybe they would too. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.